O most powerful emperor, lord of the galaxy, bad news. Our podcast, Cold Open, has again malfunctioned. The treacherous Poppin' J. Jenna pushed the red button instead of the blue one. Weaker and less worthy servants would be vanquished in this disaster, but the brave Fandalite Brent is undaunted. Welcome to Fandalites, the weekly podcast where myself and Jenna read and discuss the Animorphs books in order. This week we are doing book 42, The Journey, in which the Helmicrons are back. Mm. The book starts out like every other Helmicron book, with the little buggers trying to steal the Escafil device to power their ship. This time, though, they bail out and escape up Marco's nose. The gang has to use the Helmicron ship to shrink themselves down small enough to give chase inside Marco... But the Helmicrons booby-trapped their shrink ray, so the Animorphs end up 1-100th the size of the Helmicrons. This is basically never important. Meanwhile, Marco does a B&E to steal a camera that might have a picture of the group demorphing to human out in the open on it. He manages to get bit by a dog and, we find out later, contracts rabies. This is also basically never important. Marco's body does a pretty decent job killing the Helmicrons inside him on its own. He turns into a roach and dies, but not really. And then the book ends like the other Helmicron encounters. The Animorphs let the Helmicrons charge up their ship from the Escafil device and make them promise to never come back to Earth, a vow which I assume this time they will totally honor. Brent, I want you, can you describe to me how you felt when, the moment you realized this was a Helmicron book? It was sort of a a just real crushing resignation. (laughs) Like, Like I realized, oh... This is happening and there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I I remember the moment I realized this was a Helmicron book. So I was on the subway and I cracked it open and I was like, all right, book 42, let's do it. And then and then and then you realize you realize that it's a Helmicron book, but also that you have to read it because you promised to do it a podcast. <laughs> Where you read all of these books and you can't just you can't just skip it. Why are we so dumb? Uh, I don't know. I when we made this oath to each other, I don't think we realized we'd have to read more than a single Helmicron book. I didn't remember the Helmicrons at all, and if I had, I probably never would have agreed to this. <laughs> God, this this book was <clears throat> this book, Brent. It was uh, it was essentially that episode of the Magic School Bus. Or, uh, what, the Fantastic Journey? Yeah, Fantastic Voyage. Fantastic Voyage, both of which they name check in the book. Right? 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 Because, like, if you're... Listen, if you're gonna steal a plot, at least have the dignity to not acknowledge that it's a stolen plot. Like, zombie movies never call their zombies zombies, because that's acknowledging that their whole plot is lazy bullshit. How could this book... Name check two. Two cultural touchstones. Why, Brent? I'm honestly, at this point, a little disappointed that they didn't name the book The Voyage instead of The Journey. (laughs) Just to make (laughs) it even more blatant. (laughs) I mean, now that you say it, I didn't put that together, but that is, it is called Journey. And that is just... Somebody looked up the synonym for voyage and was like, journey, have we used that one yet? And then the other person Googled, I guess not Googled, they just searched, 
Dog pile. Their Excel spreadsheet for Hot Animorph bot. book titles. Alta Vista. <laughs> they, they, AOL keyword. They asked Jeeves. Uh, so before we get uh, any farther, this book was ghostwritten by Emily Costello, um, who also wrote Alternomorphs number two. That is the Alternomorphs we haven't butchered yet. Uh, <laughs> her other writing credits appear to be other books for young readers, uh, including a handful of Full House licensed books, a series called Animal Emergencies, and one Tara Lipinski, Triumph on Ice. Uh, if it's the Emily Costello that I'm pretty sure it is from my like 20 minutes of research... Uh, she's currently an editor working in journalism, but I'm not 100% certain that's the same Emily Costello. Hmm. Um, um, hmm. um, what's the shortest an episode can be, Brent? <laughs> well, y- you refused to just release an erased episode when we did The Forgotten, so... Oh, that's true. I certainly did. I really put us in a box, huh? Didn't I, Brent? Really regretting that now, Brent. Yeah, you put us in a blue box. Uh, which is what the Helmicon are after. Hey, that really worked. Yeah, bringing us back around. <laughs> yeah, they want the energy from the, the blue box, and the men are released now, so there's, like, multiple... <sighs> So the (laughs) B-plot. Sorry, I lost interest in the actual sentence I was saying. No, no, that's understandable. Uh, The the B-plot of this book is that the Yerks are starting to manufacture, uh, mass-produce personal Candrona units so that they can distribute them to people other than just, like, the upper-ups. Yeah, like Marco's mom. Yes. Yeah, Visor 1 had one, yeah. Yeah, exactly. We've seen a few of them. Uh, but but they've been apparently hard to get a hold of. They're starting to mass produce them. For some reason, they've chosen Earth to do this on, despite the fact that Earth is the planet with the group of guerrilla fighters who keep fucking up every facility that the Yurks put together. And they build the bug fighters somewhere else that I assume is not getting fucked up on a constant basis. So whatever. Yeah. Zero space geography. Something. Something. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it seems from for, for the Yurks, that seems like a great plan because then that's like their biggest weakness, having to go to the community pool for a dip every three days. You can get rid of that. That's very useful. Yeah, then it's much more difficult to tell who and who isn't a controller. And I realized while we were talking about this that that's actually the C plot because the B plot is that yeah. after yeah. wrecking this facility that we never hear from again, and I assume never will. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> They're demorphing in an alley in broad daylight like they do, and they see a camera flash and then try to chase down this person who took a picture, uh, and they kind of lose them a little, but get them, they, they figure out what building they go into, and so then they're just, that's under surveillance. So that's their whole thing, is 43 books in, finally somebody <laughs> happened to wander by uh, them demorphing out in the open with a camera. Yeah. I I would have so much because that's not that that is the B plot. The factory where they're producing Condrona rays isn't even the C plot. It's the inciting action kind of. It's the it's the it's like the it's the cold open. It's the cold open that they discard in favor of Marco having hijinks trying to get a camera from a regular apartment building. And then all of the rest of the bullshit with the Helmicrons. Yeah, yeah. So they're meeting back at the barn, right, to, to figure out, well, how do we go get this camera? You know, they're watching the place in shifts. And then the Helmicrons barge in in a Barbie RC car. 
Because their ship done fucked up again. Their fuel gauge is broken or something because they ain't paying attention. Yeah. Cut a hole in Cassie's deep freeze to get the blue box because that's where she hit it, which is pretty smart. She doesn't want ants or whatever acquiring. <laughs> yeah, which is a thing we know is a concern now. Ugh. God, remember that buffalo? Remember that sweet, the sweet, what, it would, no, bison. Was it a water bison? What was it? Let's talk about another book, Brent. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, that's fair. This is the dumbest possible Helmicron storyline. It's just that it's not a good, it's a, it's such a cliche plot. And then it's just also not very interesting. So this is one of the plots that every cartoon does once it's run long enough. I'm looking forward yeah. to the Wizard of Oz one. <laughs> There's another stock one that always gets done. I'm trying to think of, but but those are the big two. Definitely looking forward to when they do the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. What are the what are the other good? St- I I know it's a stock plot, but it doesn't get ha- it doesn't happen in every show where uh, the men are all ill for some reason so it's a ladies only town and they have to prove that they can still do things when the dudes aren't around it's like there was that episode of justice league i guess kind of we got kind of already got that with the helmicrons that's kind of what the helmicrons are i guess they were in the first book it's just that it's so boring it's just that it's so brent Mm -hmm. it's just that i hate the helmicrons (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're not interesting in any way. <laughs> they're really not. The the tone, the, the type of sci-fi this is, does not in any way mesh with, with the type of sci-fi the Animorphs have been doing. Mm, it's so awkward. And this is, it, it, it is supposed to be a Rachel POV, but we don't actually spend all that much time with Rachel and she doesn't really do anything other than almost get digested by Marco's stomach acid. Which, okay, that's not at all super predictable. Based on where they entered. I mean, I, I will say that that in defense of this book's inclusion in the Animorphs canon, it is okay. the first one we've seen that contains hardvor, macrophilia, mm-hmm. whatever the equivalent of vor is with a liver instead of a stomach, and the same mm-hmm. thing but for a heart instead of a liver or stomach. Mm. <laughs> is that a thing? I'm pretty sure mm. that's got to be a thing, right? Google it for me, Brent. I know. Google, Google it. Put those words in your Google search engine, Brent. Twitter, please Google vor, but with a heart instead of a stomach. <laughs> I'm, I, I feel like I can picture that so readily. It must be a thing. But maybe I'm thinking of that Adventure Time episode with Ricardio. Ricardio, the heart guy. I mean, we did have, there was that one book that had soft vor where, with the anteater. Wait, that was the first fucking Helmicron book. We've had tons <gasps> of soft vor. Yeah, that's true. We have had a lot of soft vor. Which is a great, a great distinction that I'm glad we've made. Yeah, this is the first one that I know of that one of the, uh, one of the people swallowed actually dies. One of the, several of the Helmicrons are digested by Marco. Yeah, before they slip into his bloodstream. Uh, that... <laughs> they gave Marco an ulcer. <laughs> yeah, they certainly did. He'll just morph it away. Yeah, I suppose that's true. What about the rabies? That's something. <sighs> well as an ending it was totally unearned like 100 <sighs> completely yeah they didn't really need marco to be rabid for him to make stupid decisions about like going and breaking into a place instead of sitting in his room twiddling his thumbs because marco isn't wired that way anyway right uh but it is interesting to know that morphine cures infections yeah that is interesting to know because we haven't really seen that. Got some up close time with the rabies infection when they were sharks in the bloodstream. 
Sharks in the bloodstream is a cool phrase. Sharks in the bloodstream is one of the tracks off of <laughs> off of my band, my, my metal band, Aperture of Flesh. Uh, our, our first EP, Enormous Nightmare Glob of Pulsing Organ. Uh, Bl- Sharks in the Bloodstream is uh, track one on that, actually. That is very good, though. Aperture of Flesh. Aperture of Flesh, Brent. There were a lot of good descriptions of stuff inside. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was lots of other stuff also about the inside. Aperture of Flesh could refer <laughs> to so many things, though, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing that's getting me i have a lot of apertures what i find interesting is that uh it was described as an aperture of flesh despite the fact that cassie had excitedly yelled sphincter earlier <laughs> when discussing the aperture of flesh <laughs> that controls access to marco's stomach she did do that yes it was very good so we'd already we'd already established that these teenagers do know the word sphincter and will shout it excitedly and then apparently not bust up into giggles Uh, cassie's so responsible she's probably had to deal with a lot of different kind of sphincters in her day she's she's over it maybe the rest of them just don't know what a sphincter is i refuse to believe that none of these teenagers have not (laughs) watched beavis and butthead that's fair that's fair they are grown up from magic school bus yeah cassie was miss frizzle in this book yes yeah she did a good job like guiding them through the body actually which is which is i'm I'm glad to see that her uh, veterinary experience is good for other stuff than just getting a morphs i i like the idea that uh she's just sort of roughly estimating like eh, people were kind of like cows right <laughs> well we went through the nose so uh pro- probably here <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there was some guesswork but she was she was right she did a great job so yeah i fully expect to to see morphine curing infections come up uh ever again and definitely be a thing <laughs> that is held as a as, as something established in the fiction do you think marco went back to that apartment and were like by the way your dog has rabies he needs to be put down i'm sorry or can can animals give rabies without having the infection themselves? I don't know, honestly. Mm. I doubt it, but I don't think this book thought that hard about it because it's essentially just mm. one giant volume of anti-pitbull propaganda. Oh yeah, they go really hard on the pits. There's some anti-pitbull propaganda in this here book. Yeah. Not only did of course it have rabies, but also it's just of course they're they're, they're bloodthirsty monsters, right? Right. Mm. Disappointing. Very disappointing. So the the I I had trouble following once the once the anamorphs became sharks in the bloodstream once they got sort of to the heart I had trouble following exactly what was happening because the scales were insane. Yeah, because when they first got in there, the helmicrons morph or, or shrink, and then the rest of the team shrinks. But they use the helmicron uh, ship to do it, which acts operated using surgical tools, which I thought was very funny. Yes, it was quite a delightful scene. But the Helmicrons had sabotaged their shrink rays so that the Anamorphs, when they were human, were one hundredth the size of the Helmicrons, which is a crazy scale. That was probably hyperbole, right? I assume that the Helmicrons set it to one one hundredth metric, and the Anamorphs were talking about one one hundredth imperial. So when you convert <laughs> and. The- who can say what numbers are anyway, right? We just don't know. Yeah, we just don't know. You know, they give us numbers and we say, but are they? Right. This could be a letter. Right? I don't. <laughs> Sometimes letters are numbers. 
and numbers are letters. Blowing That's my Latin mind. for you. That's Leet right? speak. <laughs> also Hebrew. It's a lot of things, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Screw Now that I think about it. Yeah, actually, there's a lot more crossover than I, than I, than I thought there was going to be. So, yeah, the, the Animorphs are real small and the Helmicrons are real big. But it's it, it's because it, it, because because Rachel morphs, they're all sharks. Mm-hmm. And they when she early, had earlier morphed an elephant, which was supposed to be roughly the size of a cat for the Helmicrons. But she couldn't do any damage to the Helmicrons. I feel like even a, a cat sized elephant would probably be able to fuck me up with its t- uh, tusks. Well, the, the Helmicrons obviously weren't first level wizards or else the 1d4 minus 1 damage that a cat does <laughs> would have been sufficient to straight up mark them. <laughs> That's true. They were probably all hunters. We can, no, you know, we, I can't even keep this up. This, it's, they suck too bad to even it's, have fun with this. <laughs> it's really, this feels like the penance we have to pay for enjoying the Illumis Chronicles. <laughs> we haven't read the Illumis Chronicles yet. Fuck God, Brent. <laughs> this is this is what this book is doing to me. What am I thinking of? The Andalite Chronicles? What was the last? The Megamorph? The Megamorph is what I was thinking of. Personally, my headcanon now is that we do enjoy the Illumis Chronicles so hard that it echoes backwards in time. <laughs> <laughs> and causes us to have to read this in penance for uh, for the good time yet to come. I like that preemptive penance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's like when I know I'm going out drinking in the evening, so I have a salad for lunch. It's like, oh, who am I kidding? That's but, a mistake, man. You got to lay down a base layer. Well, I have you eat you eat something sturdier for dinner. Okay. With okay. your first round of drinks. I see. I see. Yeah. Coffee, okay, that makes running. sense. And you justify it by saying, well, I had a salad for lunch. All right. I, I should have known that you're, I mean, you're not an amateur. I know this. No, you know this. <sighs> so Marco ends up morphing a roach in this closet because the, when he breaks and enters the second time, the person like hears him. So he brings a steak to distract the dog, which is another cartoon trope. <laughs> and when he morphs a roach, the Helmicrons do not explode out of his heart like a chestburster. Uh, but instead, everybody, I guess, is already small enough or gets smaller. The book does not clarify what happens. I don't think they get smaller because the, the book, okay, the book does mention that everything gets a little bit more cramped, which implies that they're not changing scale. But how? 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 Yeah, so they're just sort of hanging around in, in the middle of Roach Marco. And then the Helmicrons blow a hole in him and leave. And everybody thinks Marco's dead. And it's uh, real upsetting. It's, it's so believable, right? 100%. Until Cassie remembers, wait, Roaches literally can't die. Nothing will murder them. Because Roaches are immortal. Which, I don't know. Maybe that's true. I'm not a Roach. I'm not like <laughs> a doctor true. of Roaches. So, yeah, I, yeah. yeah whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah yeah and they yell at him they bully him until he morphs out some of them bully him rachel does yeah rachel does cassie (laughs) tries to talk him down like uh when uh she was talking him down from the flea oh yeah when he was a giant flea Mm -hmm. god some of these books are so good brent i know this is not one of them no 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 i mean at least this one's just entirely dumb and forgettable instead of actively character assassination like the one where rachel does a 9-11 god fuck god god fuck fuck brent 
Brent, I have, that's going to be my biggest takeaway from these books, I think. <laughs> what? That the Animorphs <laughs> did 9-11? That the Animorphs did a 9-11, yeah. I think that's probably going to be God the thing that it. sticks with me most, <laughs> regrettably. Oh, yeah, Christ. yeah, this book, this book, this book didn't fuck anything up. It just was, if, okay, I'll say this about this book. If I didn't have to do a podcast where we talked about the Animorph books, I probably wouldn't have read it. I probably would have seen Helmicrons and skipped forward, but... It wouldn't have bothered me as much, but reading through it, it's like, how, what are we, what do I have to say about this? What do I have to say about this book that isn't, it's bad? Nothing, Brent. You want to do some transmissions from Zero Space? Oh, do we have some? Yeah, we have a few. Okay, let's do that. And this, okay, then that's the journey. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> we did it. We, we, we did make it through that fantastic journey. <sighs> <laughs> okay. All right, so Austin writes, Hey, Jenna and Brent, I started listening to the podcast yesterday and just finished the David trilogy, so this may have been asked already since I'm not caught up. Since neither of you finished the series when you were younger, what would you like to see from the ending, and how do you expect it to end? God, that's a great question. What do we expect from the ending, and how do we want it to end? I do know some spoilers just that have seeped in from having yes. to check Syrupedia. <laughs> yes, I know a few spoilers for the end, too, that I will not mention. I feel like it has to end with the Andalites arriving and the Animorphs no longer being the main front for the war because I don't really see them being able to actually stop the invasion totally Mm -hmm. Uh, so I feel like that I feel like it has to end with the Andalites arriving now do you think when the Andalites arrive that they will try to genocide the whole planet and that's like the last mission is them stopping the Andalites that would be great. It, it kind of would be. I mean, maybe. Maybe. That's how they did the Hork-Bajir. This is the thing, though, is I'm thinking back about other series that I really enjoyed. And I always want there to be an epilogue that talks about what happened to them long after the events of the books. But I almost always hate that epilogue, <laughs> talking about Harry Potter specifically. Oh, Okay. So I want to know what happens to all of them after the war ends, but I want it to be good. You want like a (laughs) can't hardly wait style freeze frame with Jake went on to be a superior court justice or something. Yes. Cassie heads up John Hopkins medical school. I don't know. I don't even know what I would want for all of them. Tobias joined a circus as an amazing performing bird. (laughs) Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with Tobias. Is he just going to be a hawk? Because he's going to die real early. I kind of expect there to be some Elemist fuckery that addresses that. Oh, you think Elemist is going to let him off the hook somehow? Yeah, or like rope him onto a different hook, more likely. (laughs) That would be funny. He ends up in an Andalite body. Rachel's like, well, okay, I guess. This is fine. (laughs) Well, you're axed now, so that is upsetting. (laughs) That is what it would be, too. It's the worst. Um, Yeah, I want Marco to get a boyfriend in the last book. That's what I want. Oh, that would be cool. I want him to be confirmed by, yeah. All right, so we've got another one. Uh, Hi, Brent and Jenna. I just wanted to send you guys an email to say thank you for doing this podcast. I fucking love it. I just started the (laughs) podcast a week ago and have made it through book 10. Nostalgia is a drug. Reliving these books through the (laughs) podcast has been triggering so many childhood memories and letting me escape into this fantasy world I was so taken by as a preteen. It's also inspiring me to do a little fan art and writing myself. Can't wait to listen to more and catch up to where you guys are now. Thanks for all the laughs and thought-provoking questions you guys rock. Matt. Matt, we'd love to see your fan art and writing. You should send us your fan art on the Twitter so we can see it in awe. Yeah, because we're we're big fans of the fan art. We're the fans of the fan art. We're fan art fans. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Yes, thank you. (laughs) 
<laughs> so then we have one more transmission from Zero Space, uh, and it is a doozy. At Cena writes, Hi, Fandalites. First of all, thank you so much for this podcast. I just discovered it a week ago, and listening to your episodes has helped me get through the hell of modern life. Anyway, I was just listening to y'all's episode on Visser, one of my favorite books in the series, by the way, and I have a different mm. interpretation of it. Mm. I've avoided spoilers up to Megamorphs number four. Please enjoy this TLDR. The stealth invasion is actually a bad strategy. The issues with it are fundamentally due to the strategy's own inherent problems, not Visser 3's character flaws. The full-scale invasion is the way to go. There are two arguments mm. against a full-scale invasion. One, the unconquerable power of the human spirit, etc. <laughs> I appreciate that, etc. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, two, Andalite firepower. Uh, I will spend most of this discussing the second factor, but here are my thoughts on the first one. First, an overpowering attack from the air would do a lot to intimidate humanity and force them to surrender. That's why humans use shock and awe tactics against each other successfully all the time. Visser One's argument is that humans would fight back en masse to the end if they knew the invasion was happening. But what can humanity really do to hurt the Yerks? We have our quote-unquote primitive nuclear weapons, but I have to assume Yerks have much more effective missile interception technology than any current human state, plus they have Dracon beams and blade ships and all the rest. The Yerks have an unparalleled ability to infiltrate populations and work amongst them. This undermines one of the most important factors native populations usually have in resisting colonialization. Knowledge of themselves, their society, and their own terrain. In fact, the Yerks do a much better job of getting a base among humanity than the Animorphs, even though the Animorphs are the ones trying to defend humanity. By combining mass infestation with full frontal violence, the Yerks would be in a better state to conquer humanity than 99% of empires that have ever existed on Earth. Full frontal violence, by the way, is the name of my new metal band. <laughs> uh, side note, if any of the Yerks ever really accepted the ability of their host to resist them long term, they wouldn't be embarking on this empire building project in the first place. Mm. Second, yeah. The question of Andalite firepower. The assumption seems to be that the Andalites will nuke the Yerks the instant, the instant the latter openly try to take over Earth. However, everything we know about the Andalites indicates this isn't how they operate. Let's look at this passage from number 38, The Arrival, from Arbat. After the unexpected victory on Lyra, major elements of the fleet were ordered to Earth, but it was diverted to the Rakam Garu conflict in the Nine Shifter system. What, are you people on call for every war in the galaxy, Marco muttered? <laughs> so Earth waits. Again, Prince Jake said. You're not the fleet, so who are you? Thus, we know that the Anadi homeworld is not the only thing distracting the Andalites from the Earth front. There is at least one more major conflict in the Nine Sifter system, whatever the fuck that is, that the Andalites <laughs> consider higher priority than Earth. It also implies the Andalite navy is spread very thin in general. I think we can assume there are other major conflicts going on in the galaxy, given how extensive the Andalite sphere of influence is implied to be and how lackadaisical they've been about the Earth invasion at this point. In addition, to maintain this hegemony, dare I say empire, they have to engage in constant policing missions of trade routes, as we see when the Andalites board the Skritna ship in the Andalite Chronicles. Mm. In the arrival, we also learn that the Andalites' current strategy is devising a new kind of virus to use against the Yerks, with the humans as collateral damage, not any kind of full frontal attack on Yerk forces. This makes good sense from the Andalite perspective. They have the potential to eliminate lots of Yerks. They kill humans, too. It doesn't hurt their strategy at all. In fact, it helps it by eliminating potential assets for the Yerks, and they don't have to risk any of their own forces in combat. Now, let's assume the Yerk Empire goes with Garof's strategy. This strategy only works if the time the Yerks gain by fucking around on a Nadi allows them to build up enough human hosts and technological firepower to take on the Andalites in full-scale battle. But we are given no indication that this is the case. Remember that avoiding this battle isn't an option. The Yerks are going to have to go up against the Andalites mano a mano at some point, as there's no reason the Andalites are going to just give up against the Yerks. We're given no indication that the Andalites are dealing with problems of resources or problems of the home front or any other reasons that might cause a real-world superpower to withdraw at this point. But just extending the stealth invasion for several more years is not going to get Yerks over the threshold of having the technological development and number of human hosts they would need to actually defeat the Andalites once and for all. 
well. It's more likely the Andalites will counterattack before the Yurks reach this threshold, regardless of what happens on the other fronts. Finally, let's look at the only in-depth example we have of a full-scale Yurk invasion, the conquest of the Hork-Bajir homeworld. Let's remember that this was close to a worst-case scenario for the Yurks. The Andalites attacked, after all, we saw the results of Shakanon tactics on the Hork-Bajir homeworld, and, at the end of the day, the Yurks came out ahead of the Andalites. The worst-case scenario from the Yurks' point of view happened here. The Andalites hit hard against the Yurk forces and were able to eliminate a huge portion of the Hork-Bajir population. Even so, the Yurks were able to fend off the Andalites and they gained lots of Hork-Bajir hosts, arguably their most important controller species, certainly from a military standpoint. This isn't even taking into account that we know that the human population is orders of magnitude larger than the original Hork-Bajir population. Keep in mind, the conquest of the Hork-Bajir homeworld was the formative personal and political event for Esplan 4966. It's him who is willing to take the chance that, quote, the Andalites are not unbeatable, end quote, and he turns out to be right. Andalite firepower doesn't turn out to be enough to flush out Yurks who have a solid position on the homeworld. One caveat to this strategy is I do think in the early stages an infiltration strategy is necessary, rather than just literally going in guns blazing from the start. But the fact that the stealth invasion has been going on for decades with no clear end in sight is more a product of Visser One's own sentimental attachments here, which are clouding her normally razor-sharp judgment. Therefore, I don't think the relative failure of the stealth invasion strategy is due to Visser Three's incompetence. I think it is because it is basically a bad strategy, and I think if Visser One was in charge of it, it would be getting, going better, but still not successful. In fact, Visser continually hints that Edris is advocating for the stealth invasion against her better judgment due to her sentimental attachment to her quote-unquote children. In addition, remember that Garoff is Visser One's close ally and has already covered up a lot of shit on her behalf. The only information we have about the Anadi front is from Garoff, and I don't think we can necessarily trust it. Considering this, and that we've never heard the Anadi mentioned before, I think there's a good chance that Garoff's assessment of the Anadi world and the balance of forces of the Yurk and Andalite militaries is not reliable. Visser Three knows the full frontal invasion is r the right option, but can't do anything about it and therefore has chosen to spend his time on Earth leaning into his sadistic supervillain impulses. This also helps explain the disconnect between the relatively normal and intelligent Esplan 9466 in the Hork-Bajir Chronicles and the comic book villain of the rest of the series. Visser 3 is bored and frustrated, so he's given up on real strategy and fucks around on Earth. He honestly <laughs> just isn't trying. In conclusion, Visser 3 is actually correct about the Shakana military strategy for the conquest of Earth, but no one ever realizes it because it's Visser 3's dumbass advocating for it. Esplan was right, and he would have gotten away with it too if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. I like that theory, especially in the end. I don't love all of the theory, but I like the part at the end that suggests that Visor 3 might actually be kind of purposely low-key fucking shit up. Because I think if they were ever pushed to the point where the bulk of humanity became aware of the invasion, they would have to do shock and all. Like, period. That's it. They would have to. And maybe, and if that's what he wants, then maybe that's how what he that's what he's trying to do. I, I think that the the sort of rebuttal to the effectiveness of of planet wide shock and awe, given the Yurk's superior technology, is sourced directly from Visser. Humanity as a whole has a strong impulse to flip the bird and say, "You can't fire <laughs> me. I quit." Yeah. And while the nukes might not do much against blade ships, I have a, a feeling that if full scale dominant was on the table, there would be at least one country that said, you know what? Fuck it. We're taking you with us. <laughs> yeah. I don't necessarily agree that shock and awe is the best strategy for the Yurks' end goal, because the Yurks don't want the fucking planet. They want human bodies. And even if you did uh, do a full-scale invasion that involved destroying a lot of humanity, like, that's, you're destroying the one thing that you're here to get. So it doesn't, I don't think it makes sense in a long-term strategy to destroy even a renewable resource like biopower, if you'll allow me to drop some Foucault in here. 
Like it doesn't it doesn't make Please sense do. if that's the if that's the reason you're invading. It doesn't make sense to destroy that all for a short short term win when you can play the long game of the secret invasion because the Andalites know that Earth is being invaded and it seems like the reason that they're not taking steps to stop the invasion is because they don't think it's progressed very far or don't see it as a big threat yet. And I think as long as the Yurks can keep up a steady pace, which if the Animorphs weren't around, I think they could, they might be able to outstrip the Andalites in terms of manpower to the point where it, it becomes a tipping point. And I feel like that's their long-term plan, right? First off, I, I love the amount of consideration that's put into this and it's into this yeah. theory. It's given me a lot to chew on. Yes. I do like the idea that in this take, Visser 3 is not a complete incompetent, just everybody thinks he is. Yeah. Yes, that is a, a fucking great double blind. Very identifiable. <laughs> it might be the case that the Andalites seem so hands-off in terms of the Earth invasion because that's where they're trying to herd all of the Yurks to. Oh, okay. They can keep fighting on all fronts, right, and playing whack-a-mole, and every time they win, you know, they'll just have to go to another planet. But if they keep fucking up all of the other invasion fronts except Earth, eventually you're going to get a plurality, at least, of the Yurk death cult present there. Then they can drop the atmospheric ignition bombs. Yeah, because the Andalites would... They would just destroy all of humanity to keep... I mean, because they did it. Mm -hmm. They did it. They've already done it to a planet. Yeah, and, and if you think about it, what better place to corral the majority of the Yurks than a relatively low technological advancement world that isn't aware, barely has interplanetary, much less intergalactic transport systems. Right, there's no alliances to have to worry about. Like, if Earth disappears, it's not going to upset any galactic balance or anything along those lines. Right. It'll suck for us, but it won't suck for the universe. And the Yurks have a lot of retooling and infrastructure to shore up before they can really get their weapons manufacturing shit off the ground uh, with the resources available on Earth because this axe is constantly complaining we don't even have this random component at Radio Shack. <laughs> I mean, we don't even have standard components at Radio Shack, so... <laughs> we don't have anything at Radio Shack anymore. <laughs> Um. So no, I, I really like this this alternate take. Uh, I think it's extremely well thought out. I don't know that I yeah. agree with it, but I can't refute it with much more than speculation. I guess we don't really know how long the actual stealth invasion has been happening. We we know that uh, Visor One was on Earth for a while before calling back, but do we do we actually know when the real invasion started happening in full swing? Um. I'm not 100% certain. How old were Visor One's children when they brought him in? Man, that was like five books ago. I don't even remember. <laughs> I feel like they were very young. They were still they were still children. They weren't like teens yet, right? I That sounds correct. That parses correctly for me. So in that case, it's not a decades-long stealth invasion. It's a four or five year, possibly, which is a lot different. Depending on if you're counting all of the decades that took place in the various uh, erased and reset time loops. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah, there's a lot in this email. I feel like almost like I'd want to reread it. Brent, would you reread the whole email to me? Fuck off. <laughs> uh, maybe forward it to me and I'll look over it and think about it. Yeah. I, I think, I just don't think it's in the York's best interest. I don't think they should do a shock and awe on the planet because that's again what they want is human bodies they don't want to destroy everything it, and i think if they are forced to they certainly will if the andalites show up 
before they're at a certain point, I think they would do a shock and all just to scoop up as many humans as they could and bail, having seen what happened on the hork So I think if the Andalites showed up en masse to, to make a new front to the battle, I think the Yerks would, would pull the trigger on it and just scoop up as many humans as they could get away with. But I think, but this is also, we know for a fact that planet Earth is unique that humanity has all of the features the Yerks need and want in a host. And that that is a huge find, but also very difficult to find in the universe. So there's no saying if they didn't wipe out the majority of humanity in order to quicken that invasion. Like there's no promise that they'll find another peak species, you know, to take over. Mm-hmm. So it, and again, humanity is renewable, especially if they had uh, had it conquered, they could just start breeding humans. Ugh. But it, it, it doesn't make sense to, if they had to do that, the Andalites, I think, would just run them over. Like, I think the only thing they can do is try to gather as many forces here while the Andalites are not engaging with them and then hope that they get enough to, to overwhelm them with numbers. Now, I will say that this theory is bolstered somewhat by the events of the alternate timeline in Megamorphs number four, where the Yerks just go open invasion and it just sort Mm -hmm. of works because half the people are like, well, I don't know. I've never seen the miniseries V or its remake. So this seems legit (laughs) to me. I think these visitors from the stars are our friends with no ulterior motives. (laughs) That is a callback, Brent. I haven't (laughs) thought about V in a fucking decade, maybe. God. Yeah, well, that's that's how I do. Yeah, no, that's a good point. On the other hand, I mean, and I could be completely wrong, because my my take on this is informed. I don't know shit about military strategy or war, but I I fucking know spite. So my take is entirely (laughs) based on the spitefulness of the human race. (laughs) And the fact that we would much rather end everything in a hail of nuclear fire than fucking let you have it. That's the et cetera part of the human species. <laughs> I think so, yes. That is the et cetera. The et cetera part is always taken to mean uh, uh, self and mutually assured destruction. <laughs> White hot spite, yes. The passion mm. of a thousand dying sons. All right, well, next week we'll be doing book 43, The Test. What do you think the test is? Uh, I think probably they're all failing school. <laughs> and the test is the, they have to just pass this one test and then they'll they'll be able to go to the next grade and they can't just have the chi take it for them no there's a um a fingerprint component to the test i'm looking at the cover for the test it features tobias morphing into a taxon now is that tobias morphing from a bird into a taxon or tobias morphing from a boy into a taxon <laughs> it is tobias the bird morphing into a taxon but there is a, a faint blonde young man in the background so that you know it's it's our Tobias. Right. You know that, so that you know it's just like not a, some other random hawk. <laughs> some morphing other morphin hawk. <laughs> morphing hawk is the weirdest remake ever of Surfing Bird. <laughs> Thank you, Brent. Yeah. 
Um, so uh, hit us up if you if you want to write in if you want us to spend well over half the episode discussing your fan theory, um, which <laughs> we have no objections to. Uh, write us fandelights at gmail dot com. Um, if you want to talk in real time, you can semi real time. You can hit us up on Twitter at fandelights. Uh, we have a Tumblr fandelights.tumblr.com. Visit our website www.fandelights.com and our sister site andalitetruth.org we forgot to mention this book has another description of an andalite that completely leaves out the non-canon torso so oh i'm so glad you remembered to mention that it's got that going for it yeah we've got it you know we've got to find support everywhere we can (laughs) read the documents people Thanks to Dustin O'Dell for the use of his music for our intro and outro. Uh, You can find more of his stuff at dustinodell.bandcamp.com. So we'll see you next week. And until then, remember, nostalgia is a drug. (laughs) 